0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for our Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux. Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, Sousa, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, SignalFire, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash networkcatalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today rejoined by a very special trio, back by popular demand, uh, Mike Dubow of Greylock, and then David Weinstein and Dan Hockemeyer of Basis 1. Guys, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Happy to be Thank here. You,
0: Eric. Eric. So we're here again to, to do another masterclass uh, on growth uh, and growth in, in today's environment of, uh, of coronavirus. I'm curious, let, let's start with uh, setting goals. Uh, in this new environment, how do we think about how to set goals for growth teams? How do we think about reporting? How do we think about KPIs that make sense? D- Dan, why don't you take a first step?
1: Yeah, so I think you know setting top-down metric-based goals is problematic on a good day, um, and almost impossible when nobody knows what's going to happen in the world. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the the way that I typically think about goal setting has gone thrown out, gotten thrown out the window. And I think, in particular you know, typically recommend starting with a North Star metric, cascading that down to a set of inputs that lead up to that North Star metric. Right now, many businesses are not in a position to work on their North Star metric. If you're a marketplace, it's very hard to drive GMV. You might not even want to drive GMV if it's not healthy volume. And so I think thinking about what the inputs are or the ways that you can think about making progress that may not lead to a traditional kind of growth metric uh, is really important right now. Um, I think the other piece is lots of goals are going to look like, Milestones instead of metrics, and so so typically, I think would recommend using metrics to to think about how to set goals. I remember looking back, thumbtacks goals for a couple of quarters and seeing that we had hit eighty percent of our milestones and forty or fifty percent of our metrics, which to me meant you could sandbag milestone type goals too easily, and so always wanted to push towards metrics. But in this case, uh, I think actually getting people uh, rallied around what they what we want to ship and when um, can be a really good way to think about. Pushing through this, uh, so I think we have to throw throw out a lot of uh, the way we typically think about goal setting.
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, I I can't remember if we got into this last time, but this notion of like pairing metrics, um, I would say, has probably become more important now than uh, than even previous times. Um of the notion being that you know any any metric that you try to optimize for um, needs to be kept in check by by some other kind of secondary like metric. And so, you know, for instance, here, like if you're Driving GMV, there might be a pairing metric around like you know subsequent monetization of that, and there's probably a, bal- a delicate like balance there. Uh, but I, I don't know, I mean, Dan and David, you guys do more consulting with the higher volume of companies on this. Like, have you, how have you seen pairing metrics um, used more or less effectively? Like during during this time, given the uncertainty you just mentioned.
1: Yeah, so I think one interesting element to think about there is is pair metrics or guardrail metrics are often around customer quality retention satisfaction those those types of things to make sure you're not degrading the customer experience it's really hard to know what retention looks like uh, right now. And so I think looking for early proxies, focusing on short-term activation metrics, what can users display in their first seven days or their first 30 days that has a strong correlation historically to retention and using those as your your guardrail metrics is super important uh, in a world where nobody knows what their LTV is going to look like or what their retention is going to look like uh, from here going forward.
2: I think to also expand on that, um, like one thing that we have been, using a lot with companies is scenario planning or like disaster planning within like a growth model kind of context which basically would be like how long can you survive uh with different scenarios that might play out so can you last three months six months 12 months um at very low with with very low assumptions and see and still have a a healthy business at the end of that and kind of just tracking that over time has been has been helpful Back to Dan's point on the the
3: pairing of like downstream quality with up funnel like acquisition metrics. I think that I agree that's a common one. And I think too in in the good times, you know, companies can probably be overly focused on driving driving top line and and driving, you know, user acquisition at what what appear to be healthy payback costs based uh, healthy payback periods based on assumptions of downstream quality. Now is a time when those assumptions are really actually tested. And so I think like it's always been the case and in designing any growth model from scratch, I have yet to see one where retention doesn't end up being a really high leverage metric, but I think now even more so than before, um, I think that's uh, that is really being shown. I think what's challenging is for, for businesses where it's not totally linear or totally clear to actually, able to understand downstream quality, you typically have to rely on like more predictive metrics and more proxies for that. And just given, you know, the volatility right now, it's probably tougher to get a grasp for that in many companies. And so any predictive models, anything that's predictive of downstream quality for a startup that's, you know, call it, you know, pre-Series C, like is going to be tricky
1: that's totally right I mean it, this is uh this is the time to throw out basically all your priors about about how the business this works i I will add one thing though, which is as we've seen a bunch of companies go through kind of remodeling their business, I think there's a bit of an assumption to assume that the cohort behavior we're seeing in these couple of months is going to continue into perpetuity, whether good or bad. And I think that's very unlikely to be the case because we're operating in a world with totally different option sets for consumers, and if you know, your business is growing like crazy right now, likely some of that behavior is going to regress to the mean um, when other options return. And the inverse is also true. Uh, New cohorts that look particularly bad likely could age into higher quality cohorts over time. And so I think there's somewhat of a tempering effect when you think about uh, what this looks like. I think the question is just uh, how long does it take to get back to that normal when real optionality returns?
3: Totally. It's it's one of the biggest conversations we have now as a partnership is like, what is uh, for businesses that have seen a boon right now or, or the opposite, like what is durable versus what's going to be temporary. And and when we're looking at new businesses now as prospective investments, uh, you almost have to like not even if there's positive signal on cohorts that started in kind of February or March, like we're kind of making the decision based on previous cohorts and then coming up with our own kind of qualitative decision around you know whether what's happening right now is sustained or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple of questions that we're asking to those ends are, One, our customers just churning or going dormant. There's very different implications for those two things. So if you operate in uh, the space where you're serving SMBs, unfortunately, the answer is a lot of those businesses are actually going to default or go out of business. And so that has a very different long-term implication than if they're simply reacting to uncertainty and not spending uh, for some shorter amount of time. Um, I think the other one is is the real underlying behavior change and how durable is that? You know, I'm skeptical that we rewire a bunch of humans' behaviors because these have been tread over over many years, but I certainly think it's the case that at the extremes, um, you know, online education or food delivery in the positive or travel and events in the negative, those behaviors are never coming back to
3: uh, to normal even in the long term. Yeah. We I think we all share this interest of kind of B2B marketplaces and and enablement of SMPs. And I think sadly. I agree. I think the survival rate in many verticals is going to be lower than any of us would like. At the same time, like one of the one of the main points of resistance in kind of different verticalized B2B marketplaces is like the rate of adoption uh, for new technologies are slower than you would see with consumers. And I think this is going to be an accelerant um, across the board for, for many, at least I believe. And you know, there's different verticals that are more interesting than others. I think I think food and food supply chain is one of the more interesting areas right now. Uh, and I do think that. Even if like the crazy top line you're seeing in some of these businesses right now is not sustained, I do think the behavior shift that happens as a result and frankly just as you know the need to actually fight for survival during this period I think the technology adoption rate is uh, is it's going to persist so
1: for sure. There's an exceptional amount of tire kicking happening right now, whether or not that's actually translating into kind of purchase or transaction behavior. Lots of people are willing to sign up for and explore something they hadn't prior. And that's a massive opportunity, I think, for businesses that are even kind of tangentially impacted by what's going on.
0: Mike, talk more about why you think food and food supply chain uh, marketplaces are particularly exciting right now. And what is sort of the criteria that separates uh, sort of the exciting B2B marketplaces right now from the ones that are less exciting?
3: So in that one in particular, um, I think there is there has been a very visible uh, shock to the system that just felt kind of at, at every step, right? So for consumers, all of us right now are actually, um, I guess, s- split up grocery and restaurants, right? So for grocery, like, uh, we are all kind of scrambling to actually get. Stocked up and, and be able to just procure groceries for ourselves and our families and uh, and that is like non trivial to do right now. Going out to the grocery stores, you're seeing like empty shelves. Um, the delivery services are you know like I think Amazon Prime stopped access, stopped accepting new new signups and you know Instacart you might be on a week delay. And so I think the consumer demand is feeling that. I think on the restaurant side, like if you're a supplier actually selling into those restaurants you had basically like the entirety of your demand shut down basically overnight and so you know most suppliers were not in a position where they could be flexible and adaptable enough to be able to deal with those types of demand swings and so now i think like there has just been a a complete sense of urgency around finding new models to actually discover new demand i think one but also um you know, build your operations more flexibly, so you're not running with a massive amount of overhead to go and to go and sell into new demand to manage those relationships. Um, and so, you know, any efficiency you could you could gain, not only on streamlining procurement, but actually on the discovery and sales side of things, I think are very welcome by the industry right now. And, and you're seeing things like you know, restaurant wholesalers are actually starting to sell direct to consumer to open up new demand lines. You're starting to see you know. Other suppliers, uh, grocery suppliers, uh, you know, go into consumer restaurant suppliers, go into grocery, like these lines that I think were previously kind of more traditionally drawn lines by the industry are really starting to blur right now. So you're seeing more flexibility. So I guess getting back to the question on like, you know, what makes a valuable B2B marketplace here, I think like, you know, one of the things, one of the attributes that I think is interesting to think about is like the frequency of new discovery. I think what why I personally, as an investor, have had a hesitation on some of these models is when you look at, there's kind of a blurry line between a verticalized like procurement software versus a true B2B marketplace. And I think, you know, one, one attribute that can help draw that line is whether you actually are driving discovery and, and how much new discovery actually needs to happen. And so now is a time when there's a tremendous amount of discovery actually needing to happen within the whole food industry. And I think that's making some of these B2B marketplaces more interesting. I,
1: I totally agree. I think that same dynamic will play out in apparel and some other categories that are, are really hard hit. So if you look at um, New Order and Jure and some of the um, pseudo marketplaces in this space, um, I think they're not doing as much discovery. Um, I think there's room for, uh, for marketplaces to come in and help make some of the new matches that have to happen over the next 18 or 24 months
3: i think I think the other dynamic um around this specifically if we go back to the food example as well, when you have like fifty percent of these businesses or whatever the survival rate for college restaurants are gonna be going offline when if and when they come back online, it will be under a new wave of ownership that is more forward thinking and more willing to adopt new technology and so I do think like we are uh, one of the areas, one of the reasons why I think B2B marketplaces are interesting right now is because as consumers, we've become trained to shop this way. And most businesses actually have not had the ability or, or that kind of access to actually have the same buying experience they had as a consumer, but they've all experienced the consumer marketplaces. And so I think, I think like the generational change is being now forced in, in some of these industries that are unfortunately not doing well through this. If you believe that there is a path to getting back online in the long term, I think there's some interesting opportunities out there now.
1: Totally. One stat I saw recently that put this into context for me was that something like 40 to 50% of all meat products and 70% of seafood by value sells through the restaurant supply chain versus is consumed in homes. And so that basically evaporated overnight in most markets. So it's going to totally rewire the way that goods move around.
0: Mike, I know you've looked at a lot of startups in this space and we've recently uh, done an investment together in this space. How have you sort of thought about where is the best? opportunity within the space to, to make a bet.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so, um, I have a couple of early investments, um, in that space and continue to look and be excited kind of across the chain. I mean, food is massive. And so while, uh, it's kind of easy to look at it, as kind of one, one domain. There's actually many sub verticals within, uh, most of the like entrepreneurs in this space are focused on uh, the supplier right now and really enabling the supplier and that kind of being the, the kind of, um, Key customer that you really need to, to serve here, and I think especially through COVID right now, they are really critical to so many different parts of the ecosystem. And so there's different ways there's different buckets of suppliers. So you have ones that serve restaurants, one that serve some that serve grocers. If you broadly bucket those into two camps, I think there's a different set of needs and kind of operating criteria across those. I think the the entrepreneurs that I've been most impressed by during this time are the ones that can be incredibly flexible and and adapt to the needs of suppliers in what they need during these times and to the point we just talked about with like discovery of new demand uh the discovery of actually new ways to monetize those transactions too um so we talked with b2b marketplace i think there's a lot of opportunity for like financial services um and i think that opportunity uh while it might be higher risk today i think it still very much exists but the the founders that could actually build great product for suppliers i think are in are in great position right now and i think like yes, there's a, there's a certain, um, on the, on the demand side, uh, there's a certain service level and certain kind of product, uh, quality that, that you need there. But for the most part, like the need is just to, you know, uh, say you're opening up a direct consumer line, like you know, you need your food. And I think it's less about having a beautiful kind of like buying experience like during this time. So I think much more of the onus is actually on the supplier right now. Um, now there's a long-term question with these things. Like what is the relationship with the supplier? And uh, and I think different founders in this space have, have different kind of long-term visions on kind of what the true venture scale play is. Like, do you become the next gen Cisco and actually be fully vertically integrated on the grocery side? There's different, you know, founders have different views of the world between online grocery and enabling like kind of smaller independent. Um, but I think at a uh, I guess the simple uh, kind of statement here would be, I think, if you uh, think about enablement of supplier, I think that's that's really important right now. I think the other the other piece is just part of what gets me so excited about these businesses altogether is the the potential for like cross-side referral behavior and cross-side network effects. And so I think I know, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about FAIR before as an example of, like, I think they really in the B2B marketplace domain really popularized this as really being the main growth look that has worked for them. But, um, you know, if you are, and, and just to hit on that for a second, you know, if you are onboarding as a store uh, or as a supplier, you could upload your entire buyer list, Um and you get to sell to those feet free. So the incentive is basically, you know, you trade back your take rate. Um, and the bet is that th- that demand will go on to discover other suppliers on the marketplace that end up, you know, being monetized. And I think it's, you know, it's been publicized. That program has worked pretty well for FAIR. I think many other B2B marketplaces that have sufficient fragmentation on both sides also have that opportunity. And I think, you know, the right founders are thinking about kind of ways to better productize that loop right now. And I think it's in a number of them, it's been a really powerful dynamic that's actually helped them grow pretty quickly without the need for a massively like, go to market team.
1: Hold on. Yeah. I think this trend of using kind of B2B growth loops from uh, one side to the other is, uh, is something we've seen a lot of, I think. The key thing, though, is to make it work, uh, it has to be something that the uh, supplier is willing to use uh, as kind of a system of record or a way to run their business in some form or another. So you have to build real value and real stickiness for the platform rather than just trying to tap into them as a, a growth engine. and so So I think an example of fair that you mentioned and many others, um, they've, they've been able to do that. Um, a big piece of this is how much of their share of wallet are you getting? Like, are you a meaningful piece of their business? Um, and can you use that to, um, to kind of get them to stick to the platform?
3: I think the other thing for a lot of these, you have to look at is like what's status quo for the industry. And so food, I mean, food supply chain, call it, you know, 600 billion or so industry uh the status quo of it is so low tech like the way if you are a restaurant you're ordering supply or the way you're ordering kind of raw materials from your suppliers is maybe you're working with 10 to 20 suppliers as a restaurant when you know your shift is done for the day you might be calling one of them on the phone and uh, and kind of you know it'll get delivered sometime over the next few days without much transparency on where the order is without any pricing transparency across suppliers um and, and no real electronic record of actually what happens. Um, and it's been done that way for years. And so I think like, I, I guess as a cri- to expressed as a criteria, there's a score on like how antiquated the current procurement process is for many of these industries. And for most, most industries, I see interesting B2B marketplace built on. It's, it's like, it's pretty bad, but there's kind of different, different flavors of that. Uh, and so I think uh, that combined with just like how fragmented the market actually is. So again, with food, there's probably, you know, call it ten to 20,000 food distributors in the U.S. And if you're looking at restaurants, I mean, that demand side is there's, you know, close to a million restaurants um, uh, served by those distributors. And so it's actually more fragmented than many think. Than many think. So I think that, that is one of the reasons why I think that
0: that domain is is, um, is kind of attractive for these types of businesses. Let's zoom out and talk about marketplaces more generally. How have they been you know, impacted by, by COVID, uh, both positively and negatively what does rebuilding look like and, and you know what are we likely to see next? Dan, you
2: start with you?
1: You know, I think that marketplaces have been disproportionately impacted uh by COVID and and a couple of reasons for that. One is there, many of them are in the last mile business. They move people and things around. And that's uh, difficult to do or important to do in other cases uh, right now. The other is is what Mike hit on, which is fragmentation is important. And so they disproportionately serve s and or those types of businesses that are uh, very hard hit. And so I think we're seeing uh, many of them... Um, either see demand they've never seen before or effectively fall to zero. Um, And so I think the implication of that is coming out of this, we're going to see a more extreme reshuffling um, than people are thinking. So if you look at, you know, SaaS, for example, many of them are seeing lower renewal rates, they have weaker pipelines. uh, But most companies are not looking at a few months of uh, lower demand and resetting all their contracts. Um, But on the marketplace side, absolutely transactions have fallen off a cliff. Um, And so this kind of liquidity or network effect that they were building a mode around has basically evaporated. Uh, You know, Uber drivers uh, are not driving anymore. Airbnb property owners are looking for other ways to monetize their, their homes. And so... I don't think you can say you just flip a switch and this stuff comes back. I think in many ways it means these markets or pieces of these markets are up for grabs again. Um, and so I think it's for the incumbents thinking about how to know how to get aggressive uh, again at the right time. Um, but for newer people who may be looking at the market, recognizing that there's there's going to be some, some brand new
3: gaps. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I guess the, the other end of that would be... If you if you are a marketplace that has hit network effects and and you're in a if you're in a space that's not you know obviously and totally decimated by this um, usually like network effects are really hard to rip apart I guess would be the, the counterpoint here and so so if uh, uh, in contrast to other businesses where you're maybe reliant on the traditional kind of you know um, enterprise sales cycle that might actually slow down during this. Um, I think, um, you know, if you have already established some stickiness and, and kind of a tr- and have hit a true network effect before this, um, it, it can be a durable point of defensibility. But again, it, that's, that's spoken of very broadly. I think you really have to look kind of vertical by vertical on this.
1: I think that's right I think the other dynamic here is that the supply side of this, most, most of these marketplaces is looking for a new business in a way they never have before and so if you've already got that supply in the platform and you can credibly help them uh, rebuild their businesses or perhaps acquire and help uh, start the new businesses that are going they're going to be created in the wake of many of these other businesses going uh, of these other businesses failing um you've got a really interesting growth opportunity for many of the incumbents.
3: Yeah, I think it's important to be really, when you think about the demand side, it's important to be very clear and just very um, honest with oneself about what is essential versus not. And so you look at like, I spend a lot of my time in e-commerce as well. And so, you know, their e-commerce overall right now is, is you know, the share of the pie of retail is actually moving to e-commerce because physical retail is basically gone to close to zero during this time. Uh, but that is not, that impact, that positive impact on e-commerce is not evenly distributed across categories And by and large, if you look at like essentials versus non-essentials, that's probably the easiest way to split it. So you look at, again, going back to the food thing, like everyone needs to eat. That's part of the thesis there on like the the underlying demand uh, at the end of the day is not going to be changed. It's just the way that demand is actually served. The path to get there is changing with many kind of e-commerce categories. I think like bringing certain essential categories online out of physical retail, I think, is a really big opportunity right now. Versus things that might, you know, I think I think we're in the very early stages of seeing what the consumer demand shock on this is going to look like. Unfortunately, and I think many, um, it will become clear over the next couple of quarters, like what is essential versus not.
1: I think that's right. I mean, the early signals are food uh, pets, certain categories of home goods are actually potentially doing more volume than they were prior. Um, but many of the kind of bigger categories that are more discretionary apparel accessories, those types of things uh, are down
3: even more dramatically than the the overall numbers would suggest. How do you look at apparel though, Dan? I mean, you mentioned apparel earlier. I think there's, um, and I come from <laughs> that background at stitch fix, I guess, which, um, sadly has been hit pretty hard by this uh, from the stock price perspective. But like, if you, if you, um, you mentioned apparel in a positive light earlier. I mean, I personally think that some of the peer to peer marketplaces and moving to like more discount models, I think actually are pretty interesting in the face of this, but what are you, what are you seeing there?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think on the supply side, so, so manufacturers of apparel brands are going to be in a really hard spot because they're at the tip of the spear for a couple of reasons. One is they uh, have really long supply chains or uh, lead times in in sourcing. And so they're taking orders for a season, you know, six months from now that they may or may not be able to fulfill. And that's most of their balance sheets can't handle that kind of shock. And the other is that it's just more discretionary. Um, I don't know about you all, but I've stopped buying apparel while I'm only appearing over Zoom. And so I think that uh, we're actually, (laughs) I think we're seeing some of those. Yeah, so there's a few pockets, right? That would do well. (laughs) But but by and large, there's going to be potentially a bigger demand shock There than others, and so I think anytime you've got that that much churn on the supply side of a market, there's going to be a big reinvention in who gets created after this, how they go to market, Uh, and that could be positive or negative depending on what side of that you're on. Um, But I think it's going to be more of a shakeup than many of the other categories we mentioned. Uh, They also are disproportionately sourcing from. Farther away in the world, areas that have been harder hit by COVID. And so uh, there's just lots more disruption we're seeing there than in, in many other
0: categories. And talk more about what's different and challenging and more challenging about growth analytics in a marketplace context right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I think there's it's analytics in a marketplace context is is always more complicated. And I think many of the people who are working on one for the first time get a little bit turned around by the fact that uh, supply impacts demand and vice versa, and so there's circularity in all the ways that you think about analyzing what's driving growth. I think the key is to understand the demand side because they are the decision maker in the marketplace. They're, you know, they have to say yes for your GMB to go up, and it's by definition incremental to the marketplace where supply might not necessarily be. So I think that gives you a forcing function to think about uh, how to measure outcomes in a marketplace. You know what. Kind of experience can you create for demand that creates long term retention and how to use the supply side to create that more more com- more often? I think the challenge right now is um, demand um, signals have or, or, or demand has dropped so dramatically that um, if you're thinking about, for example, whether or not you have a sustainable customer acquisition channel. Uh, it's very hard to get a read on that. Most businesses still have somewhat of a read on what CAC looks like. And in some cases, CAC has gotten better actually um, because CPMs are way down. But what a six or 12 month LTV looks like is anybody's guess right now. And so I think measuring that is, is very challenging um, and even more so in a marketplace where you already have some of these, these more um, complicated uh, factors. I don't know if there's anything either of you guys would, uh, would add to, to thinking about how to measure a marketplace right now.
2: One thing that I was going to add is, uh, I mean, the, the challenge of modeling a marketplace in general, to Dan's point, is understanding like the demand and supply relationships and how each one impacts the other. And so in a, in a normal time, you have built intuition around those trends and those relationships. Uh, all of that has changed dramatically uh, as of now, and we don't know how long that's going to last and how things might look afterwards. So it's modeling and understanding how a certain type of supply impacts a certain type of demand we just don't really know how that's going to shape out in the future. Um, And so measuring that constantly is going to be the challenge and seeing how, how this all unfolds. Um, So it's always been a challenge and everything we've learned in the past, probably somewhat different. And so how do we apply this into the future is going to be the, the fun challenge moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think I would just
3: simplify. It's like you're adding new variables right now. So like take like measuring liquidity is always a interesting, like intellectual debate with those of us that spend a lot of time around marketplaces, but like, say you look on the demand side at search to fill rate on supply side, it might be, you know, some time to fill or like utilization metrics. Um, You've now introduced new variables into that. And so, um, whereas, you know, in, in the past, you might be able to have some clear priors on like what mapping out kind of what search to fill rate would look like over time in a certain category and, and get a good sense of like what the overall penetration for a category is and have some expectations around like where, where kind of liquidity should be at that point in time. Like that's all been kind of blown up right now. And so, yeah, I mean, in in some ways uh, I guess it's almost like kind of starting the model from scratch, um, you know, is is how I would think about it.
1: Yeah. In many ways, actually um, I think we've got to get back to, back to basics. So most experiment data, is not valid over the last kind of eight or 12 weeks. It's not generalizable to, um, you know, the next few, uh, the next period we're going to see. It's probably not even generalizable week to week, frankly, at at this point. And uh, many of the kind of standard analytical techniques that, that folks have been using to both David and Mike's point, just don't work anymore. And so I think we're seeing a lot more of people just talking to customers one-on-one, uh, building intuition around, uh, what they need to, to build, looking for third-party signals on what demand is going to look like coming out of this, um, and taking bigger disciplined bets. So actually one, one thing, um, shifting top is a little bit that this makes me think about is what's going to happen to growth teams as a result of all this. Um, so I would love both of, both of your takes, but I think, but what I've seen, I think we already had a kind of overreaction towards this growth movement, which was applying engineering to marketing problems, being data driven um, and experimentation focused. Those things are great, um, but misused. Um, and in particular, the the latter, being data driven and experimentation focused, I think gets gets taken too far. You know, the growth team started um, uh, of companies like Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. These were extreme product market fit, extreme network effect businesses. And so it works pretty well in those cases because small wins compound massively and, and, and that type of thing. And if your business looks like that, maybe it works. Um, but actually I think COVID-19 accelerates us away from this, um, because with extreme data, uh, uncertainty, um, Experiments stop working. Like I mentioned, you can't rely on priors. And so I think we're either going to see fewer growth teams or the ones that do survive are going to have a heavier kind of design, qualitative research element, being thinking about how to take big discipline bets towards growth versus being in in kind of optimization mode. Uh, when we yeah, have guess- no priors to go on, there's nothing to to optimize
3: we've talked about this, I think in the last podcast a little bit, like if this notion of like growth is successful, like the growth team kind of is abstracted away and it's kind of the way product management um, and and or parts of marketing um, are done. I think just to push on that though, a little bit. So I think optimization and experimentation are the same thing. Like would you assert now that that experimentation is actually less critical during this time?
1: Uh, So I, I, I agree that they are, they are separate things. I think you know, the, the question of experimentation being important or not is somewhat irrelevant in that you can't actually learn much from experiments, at least for the short term. I mean, maybe once we get back to baseline, you can start experimenting on, on, um, these businesses and, and learn something. But right now, unless you're trying to answer a question specifically about how do we respond to this thing that, you know, that can be interesting, uh, but they're not yeah. generalizable to the business as a whole. And so I think that, that creates a challenge.
3: Yeah, I think you, you raise a good point that makes me think about, like, what, what growth teams are ultimately gold on. And oftentimes, like, because, like, the North Star metric for these teams could actually change, like, you might have a team that's sprinting at, you know, a reengagement rate for a quarter and then getting down CAC for the next quarter. Uh, and and it might scale to kind of, you know, being focused on different products with an organization over time. I think... Um, you would often go to those teams on like velocity of experiments, right? Or velocity of of subsequent learning. And that's probably the wrong (laughs) right now. That's probably the wrong objective. And I actually think times of high urgency like this to actually just really focus down a team of like, all right, take this experimentation framework. Uh, Well, sorry, I should, I should take a step back on that. Like I do think now is a time when, operating in absence of having clear data is going to become more important. It's not the same as saying like every decision should be totally intuition based. like I still think you could be methodical and and you know use some of the same like analytical tendencies that growth people tend to have. But I think relying on experiment data to tell you the answer is not going to be possible right now. Um, so I guess as that ladders up to Dan's question on kind of what happens to growth teams, I don't know. I, I still think what we, what we had discussed before about kind of product management um, adopting more of what we talk about in Reforge and kind of like, you know, so much of it really just comes down to it, having a clear and quantitative understanding of how a business actually grows, distilling that down into kind of an, an equation and kind of understanding and thinking about how to build different loops around that as, as an accelerant to kind of different components of that growth equation. I think that still holds for businesses what I am not sure about is uh, whether teams will have like the, the luxury, I guess, of kind of running these like robust experiment roadmaps and up having, you know, a pretty high failure rate and, and you know, what's what's gonna happen to that. And,
1: Totally. So, actually, I think one of the things you're getting at is growth modeling, or a way to think about uh, how to effectively distill the business equation into a model, and that's one of the outputs of uh, the growth movement that I think is is super uh, valuable and potentially even more relevant right now as as companies try to get a handle on on what's happening. You know, so I think uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about what that means or or how to do it, but at a high level, it's linking. Components of customer acquisition, retention, monetization, your cost structure into something that gives you a way to think about inputs and how they interrelate, um, and it can be qualitative. You know, a good first step is just getting people on the fir- uh, on the same page around how your product grows and and which levers matter. But ultimately, if you can get it into uh, kind of an analytical format or a, a spreadsheet model, it helps. Uh, really drive the point home. Um, and it's, it's different than kind of what a, a finance team would build around a forecasting model. You know, it's, it's less precise, uh, but more flexible. So it's about understanding sensitivity to various dimensions, rather than trying to uh, predict some very specific outcome, and the ability to predict a very specific outcome uh, is really tough right now, and so actually understanding sensitivities and going through some of the scenarios is is more important. I think relative to a forecasting model, it also does a pretty good job thinking about circularity or you know as customers monetize, you can reinvest that in growth in a marketplace context as you add more suppliers, demand side outcomes get better. so it thinks about some of the kind of dynamic uh, aspects of the business, and in doing so gets better at approximating what your actual growth machine is. So I would see all of this as a tool to uh, fuel learning as much as it is about planning. Uh, and that is incredibly uh, important right now for people to understand, you know, what what inputs in their business matter.
2: So what, one thing to add on the whole modeling piece and like the business equation piece, um, I think one thing that this whole thing is kind of showing us is like to Dan's point is the importance of really understanding your business model, your business equation and how all the parts of your business inter, interact with each other um, and and create like a holistic system as opposed to like independent silos. And I think a lot of times, maybe in the past, growth teams are very like typically silo or in silos of like this one metric, moving it up or down because of this experiment. And if they can do that, then the rest of the business will be better. But what we are seeing now is a lot of that intuition maybe is breaking down or a lot of like interrelated Dynamics are, are now different. Um, so having a model in place, we can see the entire business is, is super important now because uh, the businesses are holistic systems. They're not a bunch of independent parts. And so kind of like framing yeah. all of that in a model, I think is, is extremely important.
1: Yeah. yeah, so this is, we we build a lot of growth models for companies as part of the work we do at Basis One. And actually the you know, the spot estimate that comes out of these, what do you think user growth or revenue is going to look like over the next few years is not the valuable part. It's when you get in a room and start playing with inputs together. And, you know, what happens when you move activation up 10% uh, on the supply side of a marketplace? Or or what happens if we open up this new acquisition channel and, and can we absorb that that demand? Um, that process is super important and it's become incredibly interesting over the last few months. I mean, we've had we had a couple of projects where we started pre-COVID and finished post. And so you can imagine the predictiveness of these models was totally shot during the middle of the uh the engagement. So we basically said, all right, we're gonna come back in a month, uh, update the data and now think about how these inputs have changed. And, and in fact, sensitivity to different inputs has changed, the way that they should think about optimizing the business has changed. And so it's this tool to to kind of cope
2: with uh what's happening right now. One other aspect on sorry, uh on the importance of the model. Um is also it's it's getting the whole company, the whole team aligned on what, what things actually mean. So it's like getting a common language around terms. So like what is an active user? What is an activated user? And really just aligning on those definitions so then you can talk about them um, without having like lost in translation moments, so you can move faster and make smarter, some more accurate choices because of that. I think a big
3: value that I've seen them too is helping a company in the face of limited resources determine what are the highest leverage areas to work on, which, which is a different way of stating what what you both have just said. And, and I think now is a time when um, companies resources across the board are being constrained. And so they're arguably, they're more important than ever because they also tell you what not to work on. So, um, so I I agree. A lot of the value actually is less in the output of the model and more on kind of the, the um, focusing power of the company and the distillation of like you know, so much complexity that can be there in running a startup. I think it's, it can be a straightforward effort to simplify sometimes by just like saying no to a bunch of stuff, but you want to make sure you're saying no to the right stuff. So on the topic of growth models, I think we talked about this a lot, like in the conceptual, I think it could be helpful to make it a little bit more real and tangible here. And so, you know, oftentimes um, as now I'm advising and helping CEOs think about how do you actually structure and set up a role head of growth or head of analytics typically they would task this person for starting the growth model from like day one, if they don't have one yet. And so, you know, you guys do this as a service. Um, How do you actually, David, you know, step into a company and do this on
2: on day one? Yeah, totally. Um, So I think one of the most important initial steps would be, one, to get a read of what the company already has in place. So is there a model? Is there a framework? Is there an equation that they have already? And if they do or if they don't, it's basically taking that um and then really aligning on, I mentioned this earlier, but like the the key steps in in a user's journey. so like the the signup moment, like how do you actually define a sign up? What does that mean? Um, and then going down the funnel to like activation. What does it mean to be activated? Is it a first purchase? is it Is it a successful transaction? what What are the the things there? Um, and then going beyond that, it's long-term engagement. So like how do you define retention? How do you define a, an active user in the future? And then beyond that, you then want to understand different types of users. How do you segment them? How do you think about the dimensionality of a user? How do you quantify that if it's quantifiable? Um, And and what segments actually lead to differentiation in outcomes? So you can cut a a user base in many different ways, but it may not really matter at times. But the key is if if a simple cut can actually lead to two very different outcomes for that particular uh, segment. So once you can define all of that and pull all that data into one kind of aggregated place, you can then look at those uh, metrics over time and get a sense of how they trended, how they've interacted with each other, what kind of correlations do you see, um, and things like that. So that's kind of more of like a, an audit or like an analysis phase to understand what has happened um, based on these different cuts. And then in terms of the model build, um, it's basically the key step is really understanding what drives what. So like what drivers can you create that have consistent like ratios over time. But Yeah, so you, you want to really understand what types of ratios that you've seen in the past that are relatively consistent that can lead to uh, predictive outcomes in, in like a, a model type of a form. Um, basically, then after that, you just put it all together into a massive kind of Excel spreadsheet, typically, and just view it all over time, year over year. You can kind of see how these things all look. And then you can build interactivity into the model where you can actually see how, Changing various inputs can actually uh, change outputs, and you can kind of play with this over time and see how things just all look and see how it all uh, shakes out. So we typically do this type of process with the company. It's very interactive, very back and forth, very uh, iterative until we get something that actually uh, is robust enough to kind of, kind of uh, have some predictive power and also have uh, explanatory power of what's happened in the past. And how you you mentioned just going back to the metric
3: definition point, uh, retention is always a an interesting one to kind of you know define and and typically you know uh as investors do i mean seeking cohort data on various dimensions and stratified ideally you know in in ways where you could actually get get real meaningful insights out of it it's an important part of our process but how like companies where you have redefined retention or brought shed more light on how retention should be measured and tracked like what changes have you have you made there
2: so i think one of the things that we the, the biggest change that we often uh, employ in a company is is more around like the the moment of habituation is something that we say, which is like once a customer gets like like the Facebook example of like ten friends yeah. within like ten days or whatever their the thing is, you can correlate that with some sort of long term health indicator like retention or spend or lifetime value, um, etc. Uh, if you can kind of find that relationship, you can then um, use that milestone as one of the major like goals to goal around and you can see and you can see how that has trended over time so you can see are more new customers or users hitting that milestone by day 10 and how has that trended and has that uh correlation of those that hit that milestone and have long-term attention how is that how's that uh, trended over time too so if you prove out on that point by the way that's a it's a
3: good point to spend some time on because i think it's I, I agree how how um, how powerful and unifying it can be to have kind of that magic moment of activation be like you know very widespread knowledge across a company and kind of it, it could be a really focusing kind of effort uh, when, when you instill that in a company at the same time I think in the early days like none of these really have like the significance you would want as like a you know if you're a statistician building one of these things and so how do you think about the trade-off between like troop true- predictive power there versus actually just having something that's good enough that will be a, you know, um, a focusing force for the company yet might actually have some risk of being wrong.
1: Yeah, I can take that one. I think the, the key, I I agree. Well, let me, let me back up. I think retention is almost always the most important component of somebody's growth model, but you can't actually work on retention. You can, you, you typically want to work on the kind of early activation moment, um, or, inflecting users behavior early. And so regardless of stage it's important to know when that happens. And I think even in very low data environments, you start to get some signal on which users are good and which are bad. And it could be the nature of the user themselves or, or some kind of displayed behavior in the product. I would say it's less important um to get the metric perfectly right than to understand what type of experience it is that you're creating or what the kind of like psychological click is that has to happen. And so in the Facebook example where everybody talks about uh 10 friends in seven days or, or whatever that metric is, that actually didn't matter that much. What matters was somebody had a rich news feed. They could they could show up and see something interesting and compelling right away. And so there's many ways to get at that. And maybe there's ways that don't include getting 10 friends in seven days, but really that's the experience they're trying to create. And all of a sudden the product team has something to rally around and, and try to create uh, or try to generate. Many marketplaces in uh, activation metrics involve you know taking a second action or, or engaging with a second supplier because a lot of the value of a marketplace is connecting you with multiple folks. And so whether that's two or five and whether that's in seven days or 30 matters a lot less than the insight around the type of experience they need to have and then
2: creating a kind of rallying moment around it. Right. A benefit of that as well would be um, it's a super early indicator. So you're able to iterate faster, um, whether it's like a it various like marketing channel um, or like product experience in a signup flow. Um, you're able to see data way faster and, and just make way, way more experiments and iterate more. Yeah, and I
3: think tying this back to the growth model, I mean, the, the, from a process standpoint, the way this worked back at Tilt when we were working together on the growth model, David, I think we understood, you know, quantitatively that retention, given the dynamic of the business um, uh, retention was higher leverage than organizer retention was higher leverage than like contributor organizer conversion and also like contributor retention. And we also had some insight on like the, the frequency of tilts you needed to create when you onboard it to be like, like, a sticky long-term user. So we set this metric for the company two tilts in 60 days, by the way, we also had a pairing metric make sure that you were, uh, there was some pairing metric around like size um, as far as number of like, you know, users that were on them. So it wasn't just kind of, uh, like peer-to-peer kind of payment type type events. But I remember how powerful of a force that was um, for the company when we really rallied all around, just like when an organizer onboarded and making sure that they were using it repeatedly in the first 60 days. And we also kind of overlaid this community lens on top of that where we actually modeled out our growth on kind of a community-by-community community basis because that was the way, like, you know, penetration curves just kind of... Uh, th- that was the useful framework by which you could look at, at penetration curves. So yeah, I think uh, the growth model is the
0: right foundation for like for all this stuff. Let, let's go to monetization. Um, how, how do you guys think about the, the tension between growth and monetization? How, how that shifted recently? We were talking about sort of the overvaluedness of, of growth a little bit uh, before. And then how do we think about how to evaluate and prioritize different monetization initiatives? Dan, you want to take the first step?
1: Sure. So I, I think... Clearly, companies are more focused on margin right now um, as a way to control their destiny and ex- extend runway. I think, um, honestly, it's probably a healthy reset for for many for many companies. But I think you know people think about monetization and and growth as fundamentally an intention. So we're going to intention. So we're going to pull this uh, monetization lever. That's going to slow our growth rate down. And in some cases, that is true. Right there, are, there are zero sum monetization levers. Like price is a classic one. You can either keep a dollar or or give it back to your customer. Um and certainly increasing price whether or not that's the right decision for a company is going to uh is going to slow down growth in some ways. But I think more importantly in the way that we think about it with businesses is often uh around, you know, monetization is an overlay on the whole growth system that can add or remove friction and how to do that in a way uh that is positive some. Um so I think, you know, one example on this is Where in a customer's life cycle do you actually want to apply monetization friction? And being smart about that can help unlock a lot of growth. So going back to this conversation we were having around activation or the moment when a customer actually sees value for the first time, uh, you want as little or, or ideally zero monetization friction up until that point to allow them to habituate. And then you'll get the opportunity to monetize in the future as a result of delivering real value. So an example that we worked on at Thumbtack was on the professional side of the marketplace, they didn't really see value in the platform until dollars actually hit their bank account from a paying customer. You had to talk to a lot of customers, in many cases, 10 of ten of them before you got hired uh, on the marketplace. And so we did everything we could to make sure you got there. And one of the most successful initiatives was just to give you enough free credits on the marketplace to make sure that you got to that first hire moment. So we gave up lots of dollars in the early life cycle. But created a bunch of engaged uh users in the long term that we could uh that we could monetize on. Um I think similarly, if there's any part of your product that drives content generation or virality, basically the types of things that are going to kick off new acquisition loops for customers, you you want to remove um monetization friction from them and give yourself the opportunity to to apply it in other places. Uh, so I think the, the the overall theme here is uh, certainly, we've got to pivot more towards monetization in many cases, but there's a way to do it, uh, I think, that is, is less detrimental to the growth model than many people's first cut at the problem.
3: Yeah, I would underscore Dan's point that I think many people view these two as intention. And I, I do think for many businesses, that's true. But for some, it's not. And I think actually, monetization can be a driver of like stickiness and retention. Um, take, you know, there's a take, you know, consumer subscription models, actually, like if you are paying for, if you have a monthly subscription to content, there's a higher likelihood that you actually are going to feel like obligated to go and like engage with that. And, and will, um, you know, if you are actually deriving value from that, you might actually be like less likely to churn long term as well. So, um, so kind of is like commitment could actually drive um, longer term retention. And that commitment can come in various forms, but one of them is actually paying for a product upfront. I think for founders, it could actually help you tell like, suss out pretty quickly whether you actually have product market fit or not. And I think as well, just to go back to like the B2B marketplace side, I think that's another instance where if you think about like adoption of technology and how seriously you take it, whether you're paying versus not, um, even a trivial SAS fee in some of these things, um, even if you're not kind of taking on the GMB side um, can, can be a good both driver of retention, but also a good kind of determinant of whether you have fit with that, with that uh, customer type.
1: One other thing I might add to the monetization question is this is true not just for monetization but many parts of the product but I think many companies approach to what's happening right now is to make significant changes to the product or their pricing model I think one of the challenges there is this is, this is the time to retain trust with your customers. And it involves not making major changes to the product. Maybe those are the right things. And if you really kind of assess your priors and realize you've got to move in a new direction, that's correct. I also think it's a time to be cautious about making changes that are, that are too sweeping and that may change the the
3: value prop for your customers. Yeah, I agree. I think it kind of comes down to having a long-term mindset on all of this if you're in a position to, but um, I guess the, I don't know if it's irony, but like the, you know, Short-term thinking here on things like that can actually shorten your runway, right? So, yeah.
0: Let's uh, let's transition to marketing a little bit. And what does it look like for companies to to play offense right now, uh, Mike? What on you uh, get into how, how you see it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is it's something that I'm paying close attention to um, is just how what what opportunities are out there to actually for businesses that are in a position to um, to play offense or be opportunistic in user acquisition now could actually be a good time for some businesses and if you look at there's various data sources out there but if you look at kind of you know on average cpms and cpcs across google and facebook by and large they're actually coming down right now just you know given marketplace dynamics less advertisers are actually spending in big ways and so uh if you are in a position to a time to actually go out and acquire users um uh more efficiently. I think ultimately to the point on pairing metrics that we talked about up front, there is still a question of like what downstream quality is going to look like. And so you it's gonna be hard to predict that right now, just you know, and you have to have your own theory on in your space, you know, what is the demand shock going to look like. And so uh, payback period is going to look tricky right now, or it's going to be a, a little bit less, less kind of straightforward to figure out. But with that caveat, I do think there's an interesting opportunity to actually to play offense more on some of these channels. And frankly, it's just like, you know, it's not that complicated. It's more just, you know, CPMs are coming down and there's opportunities just to be a little bit savvy on media buying to get good rates. And I think there's in general, you look at, you know, channels like Facebook and Google and kind of like the at scale programmatic channels, like there's market efficiency there. So there's not a whole lot you could do on kind of like, you know, media buying arbitrage On offline channels. That's not the case. So I haven't looked closely at this, but but I would wonder, you know, like back when when we were buying TV at, at Stitch Fix and a lot of our, the way we were running it was like on Remnant. Remnant inventory, so we were a little bit more flexible week to week. We would get lower rates because we didn't have like networks that we needed to be on at at, at the time. And so I would imagine some of these big advertisers have started pulling out of these networks, um, where inventory that was locked up in upfront buys might actually be freed up on the open markets now for like remnant. Um, and so I, I would I would expect that there's probably some good opportunities. Um, in TV advertising, and now at a time when a bunch of people are actually sitting around watching TV, there could probably be some good opportunities there. But that's more speculative. But that's like the you know it feels logical that that would be happening right now.
1: It feels very likely to be the case. I mean, CPMs, at least what I've seen on Google and Facebook, are down 50% and, and continuing to drop. So it's a massive change in, in the auction. I mean, I saw that Barry Diller just said that Expedia normally spends $5 billion a year on um, advertising. They're going to spend less than a billion dollars this year. And so there's just a massive kind of demand shock to the ad markets. And that's going to manifest, uh, I agree, Mike, in, in offline as well as um, online. I think you know, one thing I would add to this is... It's important, obviously, to preserve optionality by cutting costs. And many companies, the first place they're going to cut costs is marketing spend, which is a prudent move. To the extent that you can keep some campaigns live, it's a really good way to understand where CAC is trending, where cost is trending, and what opportunities might be opening up. These these things, because of the way that ads are optimized, you can't simply kind of go cold turkey and then turn it back on and expect it to be where it was. And so, I think keeping some um, some campaigns in market uh, is very helpful. To assess when to when to come back in, if you can.
3: Yeah, that's an important point, and especially when you're at scale as an advertiser. Like, if you give up all of your account history, basically during a period of time, like getting ramped up again, there's going to be a cost to that. And so, I think it's important to consider that when you're weighing the trade-off. So, yeah, and I and I do think now is a time. I mean, David and I work together on a lot of the stuff at, at Stitch Fix, but now is actually a good time to, if you want to scrutinize your dollars more. Now is a good time to be more rigorous around measurement and. If you're spending it on enough scale um, in the past, you know, in the in the urgency of needing really high growth, you might be hesitant to run, you know, deeper incrementality tests and holdouts. Because if you're holding out, you know, 10% of your audience to get a sense of incrementality on a channel, that is, um, you know, that's 10% of an audience that you're not going to hit. Versus now, I think there's a pretty good argument for, um, you know, getting your act together with understanding incrementality versus relying on kind of more, you
0: know, uh, I guess, direct or like last touch attribution kind of models. So. Uh, let's talk about some team building concepts. How do we think about the shifting power balance between companies and candidates and what, uh, what, how, you know, the, uh, the ecosystem should react as a result.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. I think it's funny. A lot of people I've seen a lot of, you know, chatter on Twitter and other places around, you know, that old Warren Buffett quote around, like when the ocean goes out, you can see who's been swimming without a bathing suit. I don't actually feel like that quote really applies. To this time, so much in that it feels kind of random and cruel. The companies that are hit are hit super hard, and uh, it just happens to be you know the type of business they're in. And the implication for the talent market is that companies are cutting so deep that you've got incredible talent on the market, and you've increasingly got product and design and other forms of talent that have historically been incredibly hard to hire for. And so, I think there's you know a few implications of this. One is. The time, the average time at a tech company has been falling for a long time uh, to well below two years. I think that we likely see stronger retention coming out of this, and potentially more commitment to the the companies that are winning. And I think, in general, um, it's going to be easier to hire uh, great people over this time. So, the extent that companies can go on offense, um, this is a great time to be making critical hires. I think across the board.
3: Yeah, I I agree with that, and I do think it's. I just want to note, like, I think it's. Incredibly sad, and I think we will only get sadder. Kind of what um, what some companies are having to go through, and the hard decisions they have to make with with layoffs and such right now. And you know, in general, employees in Silicon Valley, you know, over the past you know decade or so, have been in. Uh, you know, there's been constant job liquidity, maybe even too much. To Dan's point on people moving around a lot. Um, and I think right now that's that seems to be changing pretty quickly. It still feels like you know there are at least companies I'm involved with um, are thinking that now is a good time to go out and find like key talent. They are, um, they're scrutinizing every role a little bit more, I think as they should, but I think it is a good time to build relationships with companies and kind of run thoughtful processes with, with kind of talent and just, you know, and get folks. I do think the other dynamic here is companies being more open to flexible arrangements. And I think, to, to the earlier comments around like what's durable versus what's temporary through all of this. Like I do think remote work and companies just operating with more flexible kind of distributed or semi-distributed arrangements um, feels like it's going to persist. And so, um, so I do think, you know, this, uh, there will be a, 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 a much wider pool of talent that companies will be able to kind of meet and also a broader set of companies that good candidates that are not living in the Bay Area are going to be able to match to. And so, I think that will be a net positive. It's tough to tell in the short term, though. I think um the the unemployment data and such coming out is is shocking and and I think uh you know I think unfortunately it's gonna be a lot more painful for tech companies before it gets better. So
1: totally yeah, totally. It's it's uh, a bummer in, in many ways being in tech, even as hard as it is, we're more insulated than many industries from from what's happening right now. I think building on your point, uh Mike, around the talent market and, and the opportunity right now, I think the other thing that's going to happen is the way that we assess talent has to change. If, if modes of working are changing and the way that we can interview people is changing, the, the way to actually get a signal on somebody is maybe more based on exercises and how they write and those types of things versus, you know, the, the cut of their jib and the way they shake your hand. Um, and so I think this is actually kind of refocusing uh, uh, people on the fundamentals and thinking about how to assess who's a good fit for their, for their business.
0: Well, if, if nothing comes to mind for you, one guy for you is like, what, what do you think is sort of understudied here, underexplored, or or what do you think we don't yet understand? Like, if if we're doing this episode, you know, another, you know, part, part three a year from now, what are you hoping that the field sort of better better understands? It, either we don't get it right now because we don't have enough data on it, or because we're not thinking about it the right way, or, or we're not just not thinking about it. Another thing I'm curious about, if nothing comes to mind, there is. Is if Dan and David, if your work can be products that you guys are doing it as a product, but really as a service, like can a product actually be built that allows teams to do this without you?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, just quick, quick background on basis one, um, we're a growth strategy and analytics firm, we work with tech companies uh, that are in the growth stage, mostly marketplaces. The thesis is that the rate limiter on startups is primarily the speed at which they can learn about who their customers are, about how to go to market. And so we're built to accelerate learning. The team is analytics people, consumer research people who partner with company in sprints to answer questions around customer retention, monetization, marketplace mechanics. But one of the key areas that we uh, continue to get questions and continue to invest is this concept of growth modeling that we're talking about. And this is an area actually where we started to build a tool set and a set of templates that allow us to build, you know, the V1 of these models very quickly in like a couple of hours the hard part is understanding um, the nuance of the business, how to segment, where there's sensitivity. Many of these things that require working with with companies for for multiple weeks. Uh, but we are on the path towards uh, productizing some of these things and may ultimately uh, surface them in a more productized ways to companies. Um, but for the for the time being, um, you know, the work that we've done investing in this has allowed us to just work with companies in a much faster, uh, more effective way.
3: Yeah, I think one one. I love uh, when I'm meeting with founders that have like referenced uh, concepts from Reforge and are already kind of on top of building their growth models at the seed stage and are you know um, just speaking the language of growth. Um, At the same time, part of me scratches my head and wonders whether they're like a step ahead on that actually. And I do think growth model point being separate because I do think it's important to have like a, a distilled understanding of how your business actually works. But I I one worry that I have is like too much extrapolation off a small N might be counterproductive for founders. And so I think like it's almost like a a disclaimer on some of what we talked about in this growth model stuff that like if you're at a certain stage, I think there's a role for um counterbalancing that with just like uh creativity and like intuition um and not over rotating on the data telling you answers um at, at the earliest stages.
1: I think this is exactly right. Certainly for seed and for some series A businesses, it's much more about developing intuition about the big opportunities, what customers want and how to drive growth. Um, coming out of that as the business model starts to gel and, and, and having enough data, there's this huge opportunity to start using it in a more programmatic way. And that's actually typically the point that,
0: that we're partnering with companies. I want to ask one last question, which is on the scenario planning front, how, how do you balance the tension between you know, doing thoughtful scenario planning, but not sort of doing endless scenario planning? How do you think about that? And having a point of view, and, and so
1: you know, I think the art of, of scenario planning is is thinking about the range of possible extremes and making the decisions about what you would do in those extremes before you have a gun to your head. You know, so it's like making the hard decision now. And so, to your point on how you make it, uh, how you don't overanalyze, I think the first pass has to be truly getting the the extreme worst case scenario and the extreme best case scenario on the page to give yourself a range of options to work from uh and the extreme worst case scenario many come for many businesses is you know 6 months of almost no demand um, and 18 months of slow recovery where you can't acquire customers profitably. And that's an incredibly difficult environment for for many businesses. But the act of getting on the page and actually seeing what happens to your, your p and and your business as a result is is incredibly useful. I think there is then a role for tuning that model over time. And that can be owned by you know a, a small group of people at the company, depending on how, how big the team is. Um, but actually, that a lot of the value I've seen for businesses is in, the, is in that first stage where you're thinking about the range of possible outcomes and what you might re- do as a result, and then kind of a stream of initiatives that comes out from that. I think the other thing to remember is you build these scenarios, the reality is for the time being, we don't know which scenario we're in. And so b- prior to that point, it's more about preserving optionality. So uh, cutting costs, if you can, retaining as much of your team as possible. You know, maintaining trust with your customers and the way that you go to market, without over rotating on the actual scenario you're in, it's giving yourself the option to to act against the the one that comes to fruition.
0: Totally, I, I think that's a that's a good place to, to wrap. My guests today have been uh, Mike Dubois of Greylock, uh, Dan Hackmeyer, and Dave Weinstein of Basis One. If you are uh, a company, you'd be lucky to to work with them or or have them uh, on your cap table. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank
1: you, thank you so much.